Let's pray together. Jesus, seeing those words that you actually inspired John to write from his introduction to his gospel, that in you was life and your life was the light of all mankind. Every one of us, wherever we are right now, we need some light. We need you to shed light on the pandemic situation, shed light on our culture's struggle with this renewed uh, energy and hopefully some solutions and progress and racial reconciliation. Uh, we need you to shed light on the, our economic challenges, maybe our jobs, our, our personal health, our relationships, uh, the list goes on and on. So right now, I want to thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to engage with you as way and truth, but also life in such a way that it will shed light on the path ahead. So word of God speak. Written word, living word. We're listening. I'm listening. In your name, amen. So what if you lived in a land where no one could see? Everyone was blind. And in fact, everyone was blind to such a degree that no one even believed in sight. This past week, I read a couple of short stories. One was a reread. A number of years ago, I was in Quito, Ecuador, and I, because of the setting of this short story, I, I picked it up. It's by H.G. Wells. It was written back in 1904. He's the guy that did War of the Worlds and a few others. Well, he wrote a short story called The Country of the Blind, and the setting is in the Andes Mountains in, in Ecuador. And there was this valley that had been shut off generations before by an avalanche that was a perfect valley in terms of the weather and the wildlife, but a disease had taken over and these people, generation by generation, it's, their, their children started being born blind. Now the, the, the story picks up 15 generations later and they have no memory of sight and there's no way in or out of this valley. And this mountain climber called Nunez, he's up exploring the Andes, and he has this accident where he slides down for miles, really, it's, it seems. Avalanche after avalanche, he's cushioned, he lands with no broken bones, but of course bruised, and then discovers fairly quickly that he's amongst a people that have no sight and have never been able to see, and don't even believe there is such a thing as sight. He tries to teach them, actually tries to take advantage of them, according to a proverb that he had learned long before, that in the country of the blind, a one-eyed man is king, so he thinks he can use that. It doesn't work. He ends up uh, succumbing to their power. They've got huge senses, that, that, that could, that he, so he can't trick them. He falls in love with one of the, uh, the, the young girls in the, in the village, and, uh, but they say, in order for you to marry her, you've got to get rid of this notion that you can see. And we feel like those two things that you think you can see from, they're impacting your brain, so we need to operate, and you, we need to take those out. And so he initially says, Okay, and then, of course, during the night, he says, no way, and he escapes, climbs for hours and hours in a day back over, over the mountains and arrives on the other side. It's a powerful story, and it's actually similar and also opposite of the gospel. 
You and I are born into a blind land. Our rebelliousness has blinded us on so many levels. And we had a Savior come, and instead of running away, He took our blindness upon Himself, and as a result, we were all healed. And so John says, in Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. It's why we're calling this series that we're in, Awakened. That's what the gospel does. It awakens us to who we are as human beings because it awakens us to who God is and who he's called us to be. Our vision here at North and in, in, in this season for such a time is this, is engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. And as you know, that comes right out of John chapter 10, verse 10, when Jesus says, let me tell you what my mission is. My mission is that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that they may have life, have it to the full. That's zoe life. It's the Greek word. It's not heart beating, lung breathing. It's the life of God. In him was life, and that life is the light of all mankind. It's what enables us to see what our purpose is, where our significance comes from as human beings. He says, I've come to give you your sight back. In John chapter 5, verse 24, he gives us a hint as to where that sight comes from. He says, very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, present tense, eternal life, and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life at that moment. All of a sudden, I enter into a realm in which I can see. It enables me to do life in a different way. Which is why John wrote his gospel in John 20, 31. We've talked often about it. He says, I've written my gospel. My passion for you, my burden for you, my excitement for you is that I've written these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That's part A. We call that an orthodoxy, the right belief, but also vibrancy, that by believing you may have life in his name, that you may be be vibrant with the life of God. And it enables you to, to know who we are because we know who he is. So this whole notion of believing, John says it hinges Believing is far more than some passive thing out there. It's something that enables me to know life in its name. So if you've got a Bible with you, you can find one or you can follow along with the screens. I want you to turn to John chapter 12. Uh, We're going to start reading in verse 37. We're calling this message Believing for Life. Because my heart for you is that you'll believe for your entire lives, but also in terms of the life of the gospel that we believe in order to come alive. So let's pick up the action. Verse 37, John chapter 12. I'll set this stage for you, though. This is very unique in terms of the, where we are in John's gospel. This is the last public teaching that Jesus does. Verse 1 of chapter 13, which is right after this passage, they're in the upstairs room on Passover the night before he gives his life. And so the rest of the teaching that we find in John is just with Jesus in his inner circle of disciples. But in this last public teaching, it says this, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Pay attention to how many times believe comes up in this text. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And for this reason, they could not believe. Because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Uh, It's a consequence of our rebelliousness. 
So we live in the country of the blind. So they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. And Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. And then Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world. So in other words, he's saying, you're, if you're seeing me, you're, you're seeing God. It's a powerful statement. Then Jesus cried out, you want to know God? Know me. I've come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. You don't need to stay in the country of the blind. Verse 47, if anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. And the very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I've spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life, so that whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. So over and over in this text, he's talking about believing. In Acts chapter, chapter 16, a pivotal statement is made, and it's one of countless, really, in the New Testament. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. What does it mean to gain sight, to be saved, to be saved from my sin, and be able to enter back into the original purpose that I'm made for, forgiven of my sin, and unleashed to, to do life as it was intended to be done to the glory of God? I've got to believe. And it's that believing that's the hinge. So let's talk about it a little bit. A couple of years ago, I brought up this trusty chair to talk about what does belief look like. Belief is not just in the domain of religious people. Everybody exercises belief. We all exercise faith. Whatever our relationship with God is, we exercise faith when we get on a plane. Well, even though we don't do that much these days, we exercise faith when we hit a light switch. We're trusting that that movement will cause light to happen in all arenas. But during the 16th century, the reformers tried to, to summarize what does saving faith involve. And they came up with three, uh, th three categories and ingredients. They referred to it as notitia. A census and fiducia. Notitia is the data. So I exercise my mind. A census, if with my emotions, I'm assenting to the relevance of what I'm seeing. And fiducia is faith with my will I actually trust. So for me, on parallel line, to exercise that type of faith in this chair, those three things need to happen. Every time I sit in a chair, I exercise faith. But we've been doing it so long, we just suddenly, subconsciously, we're just paying attention to, all right, this chair is, is strong enough to hold me up. We always make that note. And so uh, when I'm engaging with Jesus in the gospel, it's a matter of evaluating, is he credible? Is he who he claims to be? Uh, and so with my mind, I'm invited to evaluate that. But that in and of itself is not yet saving faith. I then need to have the ascensus with my emotions say, you know what? I believe he is credible. And I also secondly believe that he's relevant to my need. I'm blind and I want to see. I believe that he has come to enable that. I believe he's, he's able to. I believe it's something that I want. But I still, at that moment, haven't exercised faith until my will is engaged and I actually 
Trust him. So this chair, with my mind, I evaluated it was strong enough. I said, you know what? I would like to sit down right now. So there was that census. But now this is the fiducia. I'm saying, I'm going to trust in this chair. Right now, I'm, ex- I'm exercising faith in this chair. So a few things we've got to understand. A lot of people, when they talk about faith, saying, I don't have enough faith to believe in God. And that's something that sometimes people will say. The key thing about biblical faith is, first of all, not how much faith I have, What's of most importance is the object of my faith. I don't care how much faith I've got. If this chair is being held together by scotch tape, it's not going to hold me up. Better to have a little faith in a strong chair than a lot of faith in a chair that's weak because my faith is not what holds me up. I've heard it said before, faith never saved anyone. People say, well, it does too. No, it actually doesn't. Faith is what connects me to the gospel and to the work of Christ on the cross on my behalf. But he's the one who saved me. So of, of, of most importance for, is, is the object of my faith. But does the amount of my faith have any relevance? Of course it does. The degree to which I'm trusting him will be the degree to which I'm engaging with what he offers. Right now, I'm trusting in this chair. I'm having faith in this chair. You're saying, well, you don't look that comfortable, and I'm not, but I am relying on it. But right now, I'm relying on it more. I'm trusting in it, and I'm trusting in it. And so that whole notion of engaging fully with the object of my faith and beginning to say, this this is whom I believed and I am confident he's able to guard that which I've entrusted to him. And I started experiencing his life. So when John says, I've written this that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. He's saying, I want you to believe. And he says, and then by believing, you're learning more and more have life in his name. So when it comes to belief, a lot of people think there are only two categories, two options, belief and unbelief. There are actually three. There's belief that is a refusal to to engage. There's an unbelief that's a refusal to engage. So I'm going to say, you know what, I'm turning my back on this. There's a reliance that is belief, but in the in-between There's reluctance. There's doubt. All three of these uh, options show up in this text. So let's go back through them one at a time and and look at how they're touched on in this last public declaration that Jesus makes. It has everything to do with the epicenter of whether I'm going to gain sight as a human being and experience the gospel. Let's unpack, first of all, the whole notion of refusal. Go back to the text, and look at verse 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. And this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he's blinded the eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. He says, they still would not believe. A number of years ago, I, I saw a report, and I looked it up. It's still on the web, as most things are still there. But this is on H&R Block's website. Uh, a number of years ago, H&R Block did an internal uh, sweepstakes. 
And people, if they had their tax returns done by H&R Block, they were automatically entered into the sweepstakes. And this couple up in New Jersey, in Sewell, New Jersey, Glenn and Gloria Sims, they got a notification that they had won a million dollars from an H.R. Block. Glenn replied, responded just like you and I would, yeah, right. They wrote him again, yeah, right. Finally, back and forth in a phone call, they said, if you do not reply by July the 6th, and so on July the 5th, he finally got the information in because it began to dawn on him, this was a credible offer. But he was refusing up to that point. He refused to believe. So the whole notion of refusal, a lot of people think that unbelief is just a matter of not having enough understanding. No, a lot of unbelief, bottom line, is a refusal to engage, a refusal to engage with the notitia, the, the, the data, the credibility, or if I have tried to do that, a refusal to say it's relevant, or even if I've done that, a refusal to actually submit myself. Paul, when he was uh, proclaiming the gospel, Acts 19 verse 8, says he entered the synagogue and he spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God, but some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. They refused. Said, not going to do it. In Romans 1, right at the beginning of a powerful section, and starting with verse 18, Paul uses this phrase that will suppress the truth. It's a refusal. It's the idea of having a beach ball. You ever had a beach ball in a pool, and you try to keep the ball under? It says it's suppressing the truth and saying no. Refusal is me making a decision to say I'm not going to believe for any one of those three reasons. The, the notitia, the ascensus, or the fiducia. Frederick Beekner makes this statement. He says, the trouble with steeling yourself against the harshness of reality is that the same steel that secures your life against being destroyed also secures your life against being opened up and transformed by the holy power that life itself comes from. You and I are in a fallen world. We get beaten up, we get bruised, we get wounded. All of us have shrapnel from that fallen world embedded in our hearts. And to survive, we got to get tough. To avoid it hurting, we, we, we harden ourselves. And Bigner is saying, fair enough, but don't let those habits poison your heart that needs to respond to the gospel. Just because the church has wounded you or just because a fallen world has wounded you, or just because uh, a, you, we've been betrayed, or just because we've, there's the illness, the list goes on and on. He says, okay, you got to get tough in the face of some of that, but don't let that take you away from the jewel of the gospel. Don't let it cause you a refusal. Second option that comes up in this text is reluctance. Refusal is where I say not going to do it. 
Reluctance, okay, I might be open now. Two categories of, of reluctance, believers and unbelievers have reluctance, have doubt. The, the difference is fairly obvious. I mean, they, it can look pretty similar because right now, all right, right now I'm, I'm not sitting in this chair. Right now I am. They look kind of similar. And unbelievers have doubt and they've never actually trusted. A believer can have doubt, having trusted and then due to any number of uh, some of those points of pain I was mentioned a moment ago, where we, we encounter something, we're saying, well, is the gospel really credible? Or there's deep pain in our lives, or something happens in someone else's life, and we have doubt. And in, in, in the normal course of our lives, even those of us who are followers of Jesus, it's back and forth. Now, for an unbeliever, they've never yet quite fully gotten there. Uh, Julian Barnes is a an amazing writer in Britain. He's won a number of awards. He wrote one book called Nothing to Be Afraid of. He's an agnostic. But because of Christian art and music, he said there's something. He says, I've never been in a, in a normal church service. Totally unchurched. But the first line of his book, he says, I don't believe in God but I miss him. There's a reluctance, a desire. Oh, man, something's there, but I'm not going to go there. But then once we trust Christ, could be like this, could be like this, could be a dramatic conversion, could be a little hesitant one. The bottom line, sooner or later, something happens in every believer's life that makes us hesitate on some level in our faith. That's what this passage is addressing. Go back to the text in chapter 12, verse 42. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But notice their reason. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. So here we've got someone that's in doubt, and it's because they were, they're afraid of what other people are thinking. So, man, we're walking with Jesus, and everything's humming and firing on all cylinders, and all of a sudden we, some friends start saying, you really believe that? You really believe it in Jesus? Well, yeah, yeah, I, I, I do. You serious? You, you believe that the Bible is the Word of God? I, I, yeah, yeah, I do. You believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Uh-huh. Now, He's got us. So the Scripture, He says, once you're in my hand, nobody's going to snatch you out. So if this analogy were really a little bit more accurate, that would be a safety belt on me. But uh, wouldn't, so we're not going to go further than this, but right here, I'm not really experiencing much of his life. But that's not a bad thing. And the reason is, in moments like this of doubt, it can shape me. 
It can deepen my faith. A couple of things that people, it's very important. Some people, uh, to understand as a distinction, some people, in unbelief, they're in unbelief, but they call it doubt. There are other people in doubt, and they call it unbelief. When I'm in unbelief, but I'm calling it doubt, I'm, I'm being disingenuous. I'm, I'm pretending to be more open than I am. So just call it for what it is. It's refusal. It's not reluctance. But right here is what I'm wanting you to focus on. Sometimes we're in doubt, but we call it unbelief. This is not unbelief. It's doubt. When we say it's unbelief, and in my mind, it's kind of a fatalistic, well, there's no way out. I, uh, there's no solution for it. Oh, yeah, there is. Uh, St. Augustine, he said, doubt isn't your enemy. Actually, doubt is but another element of faith. Doubt can actually shape me and carve out new capacities in which I begin to trust him a little deeper the next time around. And in the midst of that cadence, in the midst of that cycle, it's back and forth. But what we're wanting to get to is more and more deep reliance. Not just a reluctant unbelief, not just a reluctant belief, but a reliance. Just sitting here and saying, Jesus, and from a maturity standpoint, Maturity is not always here. Every now and then I get back here, but then I harvest that. I harvest those difficult moments. And maybe I go back and read some apologetics books on the resurrection, on the, on the, the historicity of the resurrection or the cogency of Scripture. Uh, but, but, and then over the course of time, my back and forth, I start going deeper and deeper into the arms of Jesus and saying, okay, here's how he puts it. He says, listen, I want you to come to me, and I want you to come to me and engage with me. What will that look like? And he then describes it. And I want to give you a framework before I read through from verse 45, 46, and 50. There are four little indicators. What's it look like to, to be confident in Jesus? It means that I'll embrace four different aspects of who he is. I'll embrace his authority. I'll, I'll embrace his instruction, I'll embrace his leadership, and I'll embrace his life. This is going deeper, so it goes deeper and deeper and from a, a practicality standpoint. Now go back to the text. Verse 44. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. So, a lot of times people think faith is a noun, which it is, but faith is also a verb. And faith is a verb to such a degree that I'm actually trusting in him. Now, what will that look like? Jesus says, it will involve you embracing my authority, you embracing that I'm not just some religious guru, that when you're relating with me, you're relating with God. When you're listening to me, you're listening to God. And there are those times that we want to go back and maybe evaluate, okay, is the resurrection really true? Did it, is, is, is it verifiable? Is it something that makes sense from a philosophical standpoint, et cetera, his, historically? But looking at why am I doing that? To say, is Jesus who he claimed to be? Once I've established, and, and I'm beginning to relate with him in terms of his lordship, 
That leads me to the second embrace, basically, of this faith, and it's an, it's an embracing his instruction. Go back to the text. Look at verse 46. He says, I've come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. You live in the country of the blind. So acknowledge my authority that I am who I claim to be, but now acknowledge me in terms of my instruction. Go back to that, that uh, um, go back to the previous slide. There we go. If I believe in his authority, I will pay attention to his instruction. What does it look like to rely on him? It means I acknowledge his lordship, but then I start listening to him, relating with him, listening to his word, letting your light is a lamp into my feet, a light into my path. Uh, John says the living word is the light for our lives. But then you got a layer onto that. It's not just a matter of the, uh, the authority and the instruction, but then I will let that instruction start fleshing itself out in my lifestyle, his leadership. I'll embrace his leadership. In, 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 in uh, verse 50, he says, for your command leads to life. A lot of people think the commands of God are restrictive. No, the command leads to life. It's like the owner's instruction. And so when I have his command, for if he's really leading me, I'm obeying him. Romans chapter 1, verse 5 says, Through him we received grace and apostleship. So this is something that is his doing. We didn't earn it. And we're calling others into a similar rhythm. We're calling them into the obedience. So that's something that's demonstrated in my life, and it comes from faith. So what does faith look like? It looks like me engaging with his, embracing his authority and his, his instruction, but also his leadership where I'm obeying it. And then that leads to the fourth kind of facet that he's uncovering here. And what does real biblical, a life-giving reliance looks like? It looks like embracing not only his, his, his authority and not only his instruction, not only his leadership, but embracing his life. He says, your commands, again, verse 50, your commands, they lead to life. John says in John 20, verse 31, that we looked at the beginning of this and we've looked at so many times. Hope you've got it memorized. By believing, we have life in his name. By believing, we start doing our human journey differently, underneath his, his authority, according to his, his instruction, letting uh, the rhythm and cadence of our lives be led by his leadership. He says, it's, it's by believing you have life in his name. Romans 6.23, the wages of my rebelliousness is going to be Death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You guys recognize life and death. We've talked about these two characteristics, these two columns before. The whole notion of death, uh, it, it, that passage in, in, in Romans 6 is not just referring to heaven and hell. It's referring to right now, 
In Romans 6, he's, he's saying, hey, as a follower of Jesus, sin will still have an impact on you. I'm not going to lose my salvation, but when I sin, I'm moving out to the edge here and I'm, I'm going to experience the aimlessness, guilt, shame, restlessness, confusion, despair, emptiness, superficiality, aloneness. A lot of those are in the experience, in my experience as a follower of Christ, even though I'm a follower of Christ. Very similar to the person that's like this. But the more that I learn to believe the gospel, to believe what he says, I start seeing that aimlessness move into purpose and guilt move into the realm of forgiveness. Shame be converted into acceptance where I, my Abba Father envelops me, welcomes me. Restlessness turns into shalom. Confusion becomes illumination. Despair turns into hope. Man, I start settling more and more here. Emptiness, exchange for completeness. Superficiality for significance and aloneness for love. I'm loved right here. And that love has been there my whole life, but I'm learning to believe that He loves me. I'm learning to live as a resurrected man or woman, born again, who's come out of death and into life. I told you earlier that I read two short stories this week. The second was actually not a short story. It was a, a play. I've heard of it before, but I've never, I've never read it. It's by Eugene O'Neill from 1925. It's called Lazarus Laughed. And the setting of the play is a dinner party after Lazarus has been raised from the dead by Jesus. And he's with his friends, many of whom were right there and they saw it. And they're celebrating this reality. And one of his friends is reflecting on that day just in the very, very recent past when Lazarus was raised from the dead. And he says, you know, and Lazarus after he was out of that grave. And, and O'Neill writes that this is one of the friends who moved, helped move the, the tombstone away. So he was right there. He said, Lazarus, he went to Jesus and he kneeled and he kissed his feet. <laughs> and they both smiled. And he continued his reflecting and he said, and then Jesus lifted Lazarus up and blessed him. And he called Lazarus my brother. And then he turned and walked away. And as he was going, I saw Lazarus look at Jesus. And then I started hearing something. It was a soft laughter. It was a laughter like nothing I have ever heard. In fact, it was awesome. It's like my ears got drunk on the beauty of it. It's like wine. And even though I was frightened half to death, I heard myself 
laughing too. Walking with Jesus looks like a lot of things. But the laughter of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the love of Jesus, is what so many of us never actually sit back and experience. I'm not referring to a laughter that's happy, clappy, and ignores the brokenness of the world. But it's a laughter that I'm loved and I'm alive. Yeah, we live in the country of the blind. But we follow a Jesus who did not escape, but gave his life. And now he's given us sight And we're amongst the blind. So what do we do? Do we declare to them our orthodoxy? Sure. But could it be that we need to start demonstrating our vibrancy also? That it's not just what they need is the logic of our arguments, but our love and our laughter. I pray that Central Florida and the world will hear the laughter of Jesus through this group of people called Northland who are engaging one another and a world that's grappling with its deadness to be fully alive in Jesus. I'd like to pray for you as well as me right now. Jesus, I thank you for every person within the sound of my voice. And there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of woundedness. There's a lot of questions. There's a lot of fallenness. And none of us are immune. But I ask that right now, you would enable us to hear your laugh. Not a laugh making fun of us. Not a laugh that makes light of our situation. But may we hear the laughter of of the gospel. The laughter of God. Who is renewing all things. And who's not finished with us yet. I lift up north unto you. And I ask that your love would be manifested within and through us. Your life would be manifested in and through us. And your laughter would be heard. The laughter of grace. The laughter of truth. The laughter of men and women who were blind. 
and who can now see. I ask this in the name of the one who is way and truth, but also life. Amen. Amen. I'm glad you've been with us. And I want you guys to know this is, I know, a bizarre season with the coronavirus. And uh, many of you have been aware for a while that uh, uh, I'm shifting roles. Uh, my agreement uh, with, with, the, with the elders was through the end of June to be a lead pastor. And I'll be taking some sabbatical time in July, and then I'll be back first weekend of August. I'll still be preaching regularly, just not quite as much, and be praying for our succession planning committee that's in full throttle mode. It's pretty exciting. And also looking at what, what can we do to uh, multiply the life of Jesus through his multiplication strategy, which is discipleship, and you're going to be hearing a lot more about that. And people have asked me, what am I going to be up to? And I, I, I have a ministry called Thrive. That's what brought me here. And I'll be reigniting that some that will enable me to be here and also be conveying the life of the gospel in whatever ways that God enables in the days to come. But I'm so looking forward to seeing you guys in a month. Uh, and hopefully I'll be able to actually see you then. Who knows by then? But in the meantime, may the Lord bless you guys. Oh, what a delight you are. And the reflection of him I see in you has blessed me, so thank you. May he not only bless you, but may he keep you. In those areas where you feel insecure, may you feel gripped and grasped by him. May he bless you and keep you, and may he cause his face to shine on you. May you sense the light of his countenance. And as a result, know his peace. Know his love. Know his life. And know his laugh. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey family, one more thing. Uh, we announced several weeks ago that we are entering a period of transition as a church from Pastor Matt as our lead pastor to Pastor Gus as our interim senior pastor. And this weekend marks the final weekend uh, for Matt in that lead pastor role. Now don't worry. Matt's not going anywhere. He's transitioning to be a part of our teaching team, and we'll see him plenty in the months to come and get to hear more messages from him. But we would be remiss if we didn't take a moment to say, Matt, thank you. Arlene, thank you. Thank you so much for taking up the great mantle of work there was to be done. And not only that, but the thriving ministry that you laid down to come and pick up this mantle. We thank you so much, and we are forever grateful and love you both dearly. Now, Matt, this is the moment where we would um, gush over you and say thank you and give you all sorts of props, and we're going to do that. But first, we wanted to remember the props that you've given us.
There's a difference between a bucket and a pipe. That has nothing to do with my sermon, but I've just always wanted to do that up on this stage. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Pastor Matt. Matt. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for everything, Matt. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Pastor Matt. Thank you, Matt. Matt. Thank you. Matt, thank you so much. Thank you, Pastor Matt. Hi, Pastor Matt. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Thank you so much, Pastor Matt. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. Thanks, Matt and Arlene. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Pastor Matt. Thanks, Matt and Erlene. Y'all rock. Thank you, Pastor Matt. Thank you so much, Matt. Arlene, Matt, I treasure you both. Thank you so much. Thanks, Pastor Matt. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. To my biggest fan, thank you, Pastor Matt. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Pastor Matt. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Pastor Matt. Thank you, uh... Pastor Matt. What? Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Pastor Matt. Matt, thank you. Thank you, Matt. Matt, thank you so much. On behalf of Northland Security and Parking Team, thank you, Matt and Arlene. Thank you, Pastor Matt Hurd. Thank you for cultivating a life with capital L fully alive. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Matt and Miss Arlene. We love you. Matt, Arlene, again, thank you so much. And we know that you are going to be taking the month of July for some rest and recharging. Blessings on your time. And we'll see you uh, in about four weeks. Peace. <laughs>